Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat. <clears throat> my name is Luke. If we haven't met, I think I've met most of you. Um, apologize for my pollen voice today. I brought my allergy version of Luke today. <laughs> Some of you are joining me in that. It's awesome. Hey, isn't, isn't the dogwood season excellent, right? They're so pretty and not, not as much fun to breathe, apparently. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 18 is going to be where we start, but we are going to dart over to 1 Samuel 20 as well. It's going to be a helpful passage for us today. I think the, <clears throat> the pandemic has given us hindsight, the ability to look back and see some things with clarity now that we, we didn't have in the moment. And one of the things I think we're gaining clarity on is how our friend ecosystem changed. Um, I mean, it, it, did, it did that. The punchline is, is there was a lot of pruning in our relationship tree, right? Maybe a lot of unfollowing going on. Friendships that shared a common rhythm before COVID or a common interest before COVID found disruption because of COVID. And then what was kind of budding or growing just vanished. I mean, it was hard just to keep a solid relationship together through that. I mean, it, it, it makes sense that that would have been an issue. You remove the water cooler, all the water cooler discussions go away. Remove the ability to have a hobby, then all those those kind of new embryonic relationships, they, they don't get built over time. Sprinkle in a little politics <laughs> and some bad social media behavior, and you end up just unfollowing or being unfollowed. And I think we all watch this kind of happen in real time, especially on social media, right? We saw conversations get real heated, get awkward, maybe a little intrusive, and some of those relationships were so young and still growing that they couldn't hold the weight of a conversation like that. that. That's something that a mature relationship and friendship could have done well with, but maybe not some of the ones that we were building. And so they just kind of, again, they vanished. And Zoom wasn't much of a tool that was helpful in building friendships. I mean, it, we did the best we could with Zoom, didn't we? To try to build relationships, but you can only have so many bring your own meal to Zoom meetings to do the best you could. I mean, watching somebody else chew food does not make a good friendship. We did the best we could, but it was kind of awkward with people that you didn't know very well. In fact, churches, many churches, ours included, found the largest exodus of people during the pandemic where relationships were newest and most tenuous. So that'd be like guests and those who were in between missional communities, those who just hadn't found a group of people that they could build friends with yet. But I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say what I think is true here, and I don't think the virus caused really any of this. I think it just revealed that we all have a systemic friend issue, right? In fact, if you go back 200 years, almost 200 years, you'll find an essay written by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he calls it Friendship. That's the name of it. But it begins with this parable of a stranger showing up at a host's house. And the stranger and the host, having never met, they hit it off. And everything is kind of new and exciting, but as dinner goes on, it becomes a little bit less foreign and interesting, and it becomes much more boring. In fact, the conversation starts to feel intrusive. It starts to feel like this isn't really what I wanted it to be, and so no one desires to expand the friendship. That's how the essay goes. And Emerson comments later on by saying the only friend worth having is the one that remains somewhat unknown. I think he's wrong about that. Where he's not wrong is where he talks about there being a tension in how we build friendships. He, he says it's a tension 
that's kind of like the difference between systole and diastole of the heart, the give and the take. How a friend can be exciting and boring at the same time, intriguing and yet very familiar at the same time, maybe abstract and annoying at the same time, ebbing and flowing. And I think we know what that's like. And our temptation many times is to bail on friendship when it turns basic and familiar like that, when it's got nothing left to offer us, when it loses its entertainment value, or maybe we fire our friends because there's no tangible thing that they bring to the table anymore. Whatever the reason, the cost-benefit analysis tips in the wrong way, right? There's not enough profit margin and getting to know this person anymore. They just cost far too much. I think Emerson is only writing about a garden level issue that we all have because clearly building relationships is hard. It's just really hard. It's hard, especially close friends. Think about how many close friends you have, close friends. And I understand that there's layers to friendship. We all know this. There's the acquaintance that says, I know you. A casual friend is a little bit deeper of a layer, and they say, I like you. Close one might say, I understand you. An intimate one might say, I connect to you. We all know that there are different layers of friendships, but we call them all friends. Now, this is what's interesting. 30 years ago, 33% of adults claimed to have 10 close friends, not family included. Take family out. 10 close friends, those who say, I connect and understand you right? Now it's not 33%, it's 13. We're losing. We're losing our close friends. I think part of this is just how mobile we are as a society compared to 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, right? We so easily pick up and move. I think 60, 70 years ago, it would have been odd to have lived somewhere for five or six years, pick up and go somewhere else for five or six years. But now I think it's odd not to do it. We are such a highly mobile culture. And what what it does is it slowly erodes the friendscape that we once had. I mean, our friend ecosystems, they have to reboot every single time we do this. I know this is hard for a lot of people. I think it hits hardest for those who are in life, maybe life-changing seasons, that threshold between something and something else. First-year students going to college, they struggle with this, right? That's why it's so important to get in a campus ministry or maybe on a sports team, some sort of a smaller puddle that they can link up with quicker, right? Or grad students. Grad students struggle with this too. The military, if you've been in the military and you have to move every few years, you know what this is like. You have to reboot that system every few years. It's brutal. Retirement does it. When people retire and they move somewhere else, they don't carry that friend Rolodex with them. Their friendscape changes as well. It's very difficult. I mean, some of you are new here. When I say new here, I don't mean just new to legacy. I mean new to Knoxville within a few years. How hard has that been for you? It's got to be difficult, right? I mean, I, I, I will follow some of you on various social media um, devices or, or, or social media streams, and what will happen is, is I'll see people comment with you, but they live somewhere else USA. They were the friends that you used to have, that you still try to keep up a good a good relationship with. And, and I know that's what we tell ourselves. I've got friends everywhere now. I, Luke, I know I'm mobile and I've moved, but I've got friends everywhere. Not really though, right? I mean, you could pick up where you left off for like, what, a year? And then you start to become irrelevant as it runs its course. Right? They start having kids, you start having kids, they start aging, you start aging. And it turns out you don't have as much in common as you did 10 years ago. Some of you have noticed this with people that you've gone to school with, people that you were once very, very, very 
close to. See, I found this intriguing study done at KU in Lawrence, and they did this huge, wide-scoping, peer-reviewed study. It's fascinating now, regarding how much time it takes to make a friend. What a great thing to do a study on. It's interesting to me. And this is what they did. They factor in things like the quality of the time you spend. Right? Because not all hours are the same. You have some where there's just gaming. If you're gaming and your, your friend is on the other side of an internet connection, that's probably not as quality as sitting across during lunch or something like that. There's, there's a difference, right? Or, may, or maybe struggling with a friend, reconciling, fighting it out. That's different than just Super Bowl party. Right? So they take that into consideration. And then the frequency of how often you spend time with that person and how quickly that amplifies friend building. And the study found that to build a close friend, not a best friend, just a close friend, 90 hours, 90 quality hours. Let that sink in for a moment. It makes sense, doesn't it, when you think about it? 90 quality hours? I don't think very many people are going to argue with that. Here's what's even more fascinating. To build a deep lifetime best friend, 450 to 650 hours is what the study found. <laughs> That's a lot of hours. These are quality hours too. Just take the lower bound of that. And I did because it's what you pay me all the big bucks to do. I took the lower bound of that. If you sprinkle it out two hours a week, like a comm group or a DNA group, right? And maybe you take the, the, the holidays out because we all miss those times, right? It, it ends up being almost five years, five years to build a deep lifetime. For, and that's if it's spread out, right? That's if it's spread out. Again, there's, there's variance in this, but there's some observations we can pull from this. I was talking to my college daughter about this the other day. We were kind of discussing this study. She gave me a lot of insight. But one of the observations that I pulled out of it is, I think this is why war veterans have such thick connections. I don't know that you can pack more quality in an hour spent when they're shoulder to shoulder and life is on the line. I mean, that's thick. Those relationships just can't be cracked. Or, I think another observation is why me and my wife are best friends. Spend a lot of quality time with your bride. Or with your husband, right? I mean, listen, if you're new into your marriage or you're thinking about getting married, let me just say your marriage won't make it through too many brick walls on just looks alone or sex or appeal. You're going to have to be covenant friends. I mean, best friends, quality hours spent. But the third one is, is I think it, and this is an observation, I think it takes more than a few months in a new city or a new church to make good, deep, lifetime friends. Maybe more than just a few months. Maybe more than a couple years even, right? One of the things I hear a lot from people coming into legacy and people leaving legacy, so the traffic moves both ways on this. I hear it still. Luke, I can't make friends. I couldn't make friends there, or I can't make friends here, but I can't make friends. But what I found is I think sometimes the loneliest people are the worst at making friends. They just struggle at it. Here's the mathematical equation that I think we all need to memorize if you want to build a deep friendship. We're going to put it up on the screen. Very complicated right here. That's about as complicated as my math gets. Presence plus consistency equals friendship. Now, that's intuitive. We all knew this, right? We all knew this. It's not very provocative. But attending a church service like this for five years, six years, seven years, this won't build a relationship that's very deep. This won't create something that you could carry forward through adversity, through difficulty. This doesn't build covenant, deep, intimate relationships. It might make the space for a small one to start, but this doesn't build anything deeper than that. 
Listen, the best friendships, as Emerson said, will be both systolically and diastolically built over many years. That means easy moments and hard moments together. Boring and amazing at the same time. Apparently for over 600 hours. <laughs> That's a lot. It's 38 coffees, 17 lunches, six Super Bowl parties, three campouts, two hospital visits, a couple fights, and there you have a brother that is closer than family, one that can make it through adversity. But friends, I mean, you can tell just by me saying that, that's not for free. It's not for free. I was talking to my wife about this yesterday, and when we were discussing this study from KU, because I find it fascinating, 650 hours is just is way beyond what I thought it was going to be. But as we were discussing it, she said, you know what, that might be a good encouragement for the missional community group leaders, for our comm group leaders. I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, because, I mean, it, the chemistry doesn't always work. Some nights are just good, but they're not awesome. But if you're a host or you're a leader, you want those to be excellent, every single one of them to be excellent and life-changing, and they can't all be like that. But it's the conglomerate, it's the aggregate of boring ones and exciting ones, of normal ones and extraordinary ones that will build deep friendships. And I know that to be true, and she's right. So if it doesn't feel like it's clicking for you and your community, hang on. Just hang on. Just rinse and repeat over and over See, I wanted to sell the problem of loneliness before I brought the passage, because some of us are desperately lonely. Not alone, just lonely, right? Just lonely. And you know it's not good. You, just, you might not know what to do. You wonder if the Bible even speaks to it, if Jesus even cares, right? Or maybe where we sin. What do we need to repent from when it comes to how we build friends? Or is it just something we're a victim in? And this passage is going to be helpful. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel 18. I'm going to read just one verse. It's going to be 18.3. We actually went over this last week when we talked about how Jonathan, who was David's friend in this very key point in David's, rela- or in David's life, his narrative, his arc, where he just emptied himself of his kingship. And he's handing David basically the future reign of the kingdom and how much he loved David. And I'm going to read this part again. Verse 3, 18, verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Okay, that's, that's going to help us with the rest of our passage today, but we see a covenant being built. And that might be new-ish language to some of you, especially if you didn't grow up in the church. A covenant is something that extends beyond a contract. It's a promise. It's, it's an oath. But it's not just between two people. There's actually a third party in a covenant, and it's the Lord himself. So it's not just Jonathan and David making an agreement together. The Lord is third party to this. This is as if Jonathan is saying, by his actions, and you're going to find most covenants in the Bible have an outward expression, something, and we don't have time to go into the depth of what every covenant is, although it's fascinating, I think. But you're always going to see some outward demonstration of the value of the covenant, and that's what we see here, the stripping of himself. But what Jonathan is saying is, with God as my witness, I'll not abandon you. I'm not going to, I'm not just going to dispose of you. You and me, David, we ride till we die. We're together. And nothing's going to stop it. God is my witness. And man, David would need this. Man, right, right after this, he found nothing but constant trouble. 
a spear or two might have been thrown. He's got, he's got no safe harbor in the palace. I don't read 1 Samuel and catch the drift. He had some tight family unit to lean back on. He's alone, hunted as a young man, hated. And here's the thing, he doesn't even know why he's hated. Ever, ever, ever happened to you? People, someone hates you? And, and half of the struggle, struggles, you, you don't even know why they hate you. And that's where he's at. His life was insane, but this insanity was bracketed by the steadfast friendship of Jonathan. Gosh, man, how valuable a friend like this. When your life is just dodgy and sad and ruined, to have a friend that just loves you, they don't just tolerate you and your phone calls, but they've got deep patience for you. They love you. They're not just trying to fix you. They're there to hear, listen. They don't judge you or use you. They patiently understand and they deeply connect. The value of a friend then, you, you cannot measure. But let's look what happens in 1 Samuel 20 as David's life starts to show the wear and tear of the fact that he could lose it at any day. I mean, he is living. He wakes up every morning a little differently than we do at this point. He's waking up every morning wondering if it's his last day. That's stress. And it says this in verse 1, Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, so he's at Jonathan's house at this point, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And, and why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. I get the picture here, every time I've read this in the past, that Jonathan's a bit naive as to what's going on. Anyone have a friend like that that can't quite read the room like it really is? They just believe the best about everybody? That's where Jonathan is right now. So David has to be a little bit more frank of, look, he's your dad. Just imagine, he might not be telling you everything because he knows you and me are covenanted together. He might keep some things a secret from you, Jonathan, but this is one thing I know, I'm a stiff wind away from, from being killed. That's what I know. So what they do is they cook up a little bit of a plan, and I'll let you read it on your own. It's quite a bit of scripture between verse 4 and 34. They cook up a plan where Jonathan on his own can discover how serious Saul is about this, and he finds out quickly. What this plan does is it reveals that, yeah, true statement, he's out to kill David. So now that Jonathan can see that clearly, he has to communicate this with David. Problem is, is there's spies everywhere. Saul has people everywhere watching Jonathan in hopes of catching David. That's what's going on. So they cook up this second plan on how Jonathan would disclose to David it's time to run. Either that or you're, you're safe to stay. So he would go out to this target range and fire some arrows off, kind of like an ancient top golf, but probably a lot cooler. He would just reach back and let some arrows go, and he'd group them together and send a young kid out to grab the arrows and then bring them back. And they were going to use that as a vehicle to kind of communicate back and forth so that the spies, if they happen to be there, would not catch on what's, what's happening. So let's just look real quick at verse 35. This is 20, 1 Samuel 20, verse 35. We're going to get to the end of this plot. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to 
to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow behind him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? That's the clue right there. That's the secret Morse code that David, you're gonna have to scram. Verse 38, and Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. Here, right here, I don't know, listen, I don't know, full disclosure, why they're talking to each other now and why the, the concealed signal is no longer needed. The only thing I can assume through this, and you're free to assume what you want, is that they realized that there were no spies around after all, and so they were free to talk face-to-face. But there was, there was a pivot. They're face-to-face now at this point. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. They would never see each other again. That's the last time they ever lock eyes. It's tough. It feels like a good friendship snuffed out before it got really good, doesn't it? If you read it. Here's the main idea of these passages, at least the chunks that we've read through. Jonathan's covenant with David comes when David could really use a faithful friend. We see a picture of covenant friendship. Not consumeristic friendship. And there is a difference, right, between a consumer relationship and a covenant relationship. Consumers build contracts, usually for utility reasons, what I can get out of it, or entertainment reasons. Investing, as long as there's a profit margin... As as long as the cost-benefit analysis makes sense, but as soon as the debit gets more than the credit, it's so easy to fire the friend, just to extinguish the relationship. And sometimes we do this in society, and we back it up or hide behind words like, they weren't good for my mental health. That was a toxic relationship. And we kind of take harbor behind those words. And society rewards this, saying things like, hey, you just need to surround yourself with winners. Don't let people drag you down. I mean, you could look out for them, but I mean, just up to here, not any further, right? And I gotta be honest, I get, I get this, a lot of this. I mean, who wants, a, who wants uh, a friendship to be a lot of work? Not it, not it. Who wants a friendship to come with a lot of drama and drain you and come with its own emotional burdens? Not me, right? But what I see here is Jonathan emptying himself and aligning himself with somebody who could only hurt him. David could only cost him. He's going to be king one day. That's just going to cost him. David brought nothing but emotional baggage and emotional debt to the picture. I wonder what those around Jonathan were telling him at the time. I wonder what kind of advice he got. Hey, Jonathan, you need to dump that guy. He's just going to pull you down. He's just going to hurt you. I mean, bearing with somebody, that's noble and all. 
right? Anytime you hear someone start a phrase like that, they're about to say the very opposite of what they mean to say. Hey, I know it's good and all that you do that. It's noble and all that you do this. But honestly, at some point, you've got to look out for number one, right? At some point, the nobility has to run its course. You know, Emerson is only imitating society with his essay and saying that maybe the best friends are conveniently undiscovered ones, that maybe the shallow relationships are really the, the best ones, the disposable ones, the convenient ones. I do suspect that this is one reason for the sudden uptick in buddy podcasts. There are over 5 million podcasts in the world right now, by the way. That's fascinating alone, right? 5 million different podcasts. But statistically, half of you regularly listen to one, at least one, half of us, right? But the buddy podcasts are the ones that are getting the most um, just traction, I guess you could say. Usually by two hosts or more, a couple athletes, a couple comedians, a couple politicians, a couple, a couple. But they get along. They're friends, right? Those are taking off. And it makes sense. The hosts, the friends, they seem authentic enough, right, as they talk to each other. And it resonates with you or else you wouldn't be listening to it. So there's some resonance back and forth. And this is what you would want from a friendship, isn't it? That type of resonance. It's a long-running discussion with a lot of callbacks and inside jokes that you get, that you understand. It's what we want from a friendship, right? They're humorous. You get their humor or, again, you wouldn't be listening to them. So there's some entertainment there. Again, what we always want from a friend. We see the host or hosts kind of divulge their minutiae, just the small basic things that happen in their day. Again, these are things that we want from our friendships. Listen, there is a sociological term for this. It's called parasocial interaction. This ability of feeling like we are in on an inside group that doesn't even know we exist, right? Where we feel like we know them deeply and we are very, very unknown. I get the appeal to it because it doesn't carry a cost. I mean, the only thing it costs you is pushing a button. It says subscribe or play. There's no draining drama. There's no requirement of you to be wise or to maybe initiate with a hard question or to minister to them. In fact, if it's boring, you could just push to the next episode, just like that, right? Man, it's turning out to be a very sad surrogate for functional friendship, right? They don't know you. You don't even know them. But for some of us, that's okay. We're okay with that. It's good enough. I think the Bible has a bigger vision for friendship. I know we do as a church. One of the things we say and have said for a long time is our value, one of the values we have within community is to know and be deeply known. We think it's important both ways. To know others deeply and to be known deeply. This is what we're aiming for. Intimate friendships, the expensive kind, the 650 plus kind, the 1,650 hours plus kind. That's what we're looking for, right? That's what we're looking to build. But this means a Jonathan-shaped friendship, which is full of spent time and full of spent energy. Basically, if I read the Bible like I'm reading it, to grow an ecosystem, a garden of friends, there's going to be a lot of thorns and thistles, right? A lot of cost. You'll feel it. I think if Jonathan were preaching today instead of me, I think he'd probably run you through and relay what his covenant friendship with David cost him. We only see the big moments. We don't see the daily price tag of that relationship with David. I think he'd have one, though. I think he'd have a long list of things of, hey, that was expensive. That, that covenant I had with David was hard. 
But you know what? David would have the same thing if David was preaching here. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, which we will get to, is where David honors the same covenant. With who? With Jonathan? Uh-uh. With one of, his, one of his kids, a crippled kid. He loves him so much. I mean, he brings him close at David's cost for the benefit of the other. You want to know why? Because that's what friends do. That's what friends do. They carry each other's pains and struggles. This is not a message on how to be a friend like Jonathan. It's a message on how to be befriended by a better Jonathan. How to be befriended. Our better Jonathan and Jesus, he honors a covenant not just towards inconvenience but towards death itself. I mean, because we have a Christ that befriends criminals, failures, sinners, flawed addicts, those full of regret, those with a past, and he does this at a great cost to himself to our great benefit. He's not a consumer. He doesn't weigh the imbalance, the, the ROI on how much he gives and how much he gets. He's not looking for us to pursue him first. He initiates movement towards us. He empties himself, not for a good people, not for a well-behaved people, but for a dramatic people full of baggage, right, who refuse to love back. <laughs> Think about that price tag right there. I'll just say this. I think he spent more than 650 hours with us. He's known us since the womb. He knows us better than we know ourselves. That's how deep his knowledge and his connection is with us. You guys went through this as your call to worship in John 15. I'm going to read it again. It's just three verses in verse 12. Jesus later says, This is my commandment that you, meaning you and me today, that we love one another as he has loved us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. It's a beautiful passage. Jesus makes himself nothing to make us insiders. He strips himself, exposes himself, makes himself vulnerable to make us friends. And his friendship to us is steadfast, even though ours to him isn't so much, right? And since we're befriended perfectly, perfectly, what it does is it brings a freedom to you and to me to friend others. And I say a freedom, and that's important. I'm going to go through six quick freedoms. They're, they're going to be bullet fast. Six freedoms that the gospel awards you and me that allows us as the befriended to befriend others well, right? The first freedom we have is we are free from asking, what about me? Well, what about me? Look, this is all how I'm supposed to be a friend. What about me? And yes, it's important to be known deeply. And in some seasons, that's really hard to fight for, isn't it? It's not always promised. It's not. But if deep friendship was required before it was gifted, this story wouldn't exist in the Bible. Let me tell you, the gospel wouldn't either. The gospel wouldn't either. Demanding best friends before we embody one, it just it reveals this uh, disaffection for the gospel, this misunderstanding of the gospel. Because we don't have a picture of Christ saying, friend, what about me though? What about me? My better friend sticks closer than a brother, and that means I can release my demands on others because Christ has released his demand on me. That's a freedom we have. 
that the gospel has given us. Another freedom, we're free to initiate these relationships, to take the first step. Jonathan initiated to David's benefit. David would later initiate to his kid's benefit, Mephibosheth. But friend, let me just say this. If you're waiting for somebody else to do all the work and take all the first steps, you're probably not going to experience a deep, life-giving, lifetime, intimate relationship. You'll never enjoy that depth. You're going to have to spend yourself without expectation and without reciprocation. You'll have to do it. You're going to have to move first. You're going to have to lift weight. Because Christ moved as our supreme initiator. He came close to us, right? He initiated. This is what a Jesus and Jonathan-shaped friend will do. Third, we're free. We're free to be honest. This is important. All of my good friends, my deep friends, my close friends, I've given them all search warrants. They could kick in the door to my life anytime they want, go snooping around and speak to whatever they see. They have that freedom. Emerson comments on how intrusive this aspect of friendship is and how much it wears thinly. He's not wrong. It does. I never like it when my friends do that. It doesn't feel good. I'm tempted to lie. I'm tempted to hedge, tell a half-truth, because it's no fun. But this is how you build good friendships. This is where they're built. This is where they're forged. That's what you would call a quality hour spent, right? One thing I've learned is with good friends, and if they're really good, there's nothing to prove. There's, there's no one to impress with good friends, right? If you don't have that, by the way, that type of friendship, that takes solid building. I hope you've picked that up over the time, over the, just the last 20 minutes of how much work goes into building a relationship like that. The fourth freedom we have is we're free to bankrupt ourselves for others. This is where, this is where it can get tough for people. Luke, does that mean that I'm free to be pushed around? I'm free to be abused as a friend? No, it doesn't. Love would tell somebody, a good friend would tell somebody that they're in sin. The win isn't to be a punching bag. The win is to walk along somebody when they're in a difficult season, right? By the way, those who empty themselves without leading people past their sins, those aren't good friends, and that's not good friendship. That martyrdom it might feel noble in the moment, but it's no love to the other person. But what I want you to see is that this type of friendship is sacrificial. If you don't want to sacrifice that much for a friend, get a podcast. Find a good one and hope it never stops because that's about all you're going to get out of it. Freedom number five, we are free to be someone else's sanity. When their life makes no sense and their life is going to be all about them and they're not going to ask you how you're doing because that's just the season of life that they're in. Keep investing. Keep investing. You're going to want the same someday. And this is who Christ was to us. And freedom number six, and maybe I think probably one of the hardest ones, you and I, we are free to build at our own risk. You are free to invest 650 plus hours into a relationship that you suspect might be exited one day. You're free to do that. This is hard. This is hard. I mean, we, nobody wants to see that happen in their life. Nobody wants a relationship to become irrelevant when they've spent and cashed in that much time. I mean, how many, how many times have you scrolled through social media and found somebody that you've spent seven, eight, nine hundred hours on? Oh, they were your best friend. I mean, for life. And now you, you don't know their kids' names. You don't know what they're into. 
They look different. They sound different. And it makes you cautious about building anything like that ever again, right? Listen, I struggle with this more than any of these freedoms right here because I know I'll be injured. I know friends will leave. It's already happened. It's hard. Multiple times. It hurts badly. The knee jerk is for us to protect ourselves from future pain, to bubble wrap ourselves, to promise ourselves, I'm never going to let that happen again. That's the instinct, is to be less available, to withdraw, to withhold ourselves from future liability. And that's natural if that's you, by the way. I went back and looked at some journal entries of when I was struggling a lot with this, and I found this moment where in just with the Spirit's help, was able to write down, Lord, I know I will have 83 men, 85, 110 men, who knows, that I will connect to and pour my life into. Who will exit someday? They're not going to be my forever friends. Some of it's good, some of it's going to be bad. You, however, will never leave me. You are my forever friend. You're my covenant friend. You won't dispose of me. You won't protect yourself from me. Lord, I just want to be satisfied with that. Help me be content, so content with that that I'm not demanding this God-shaped relationship with somebody else. Help me see things clearly. But friend, exposing yourself to potential heartache, that is, let me just say, the only road to deep friendship. Emerson was a little bit of a prophet in that way for the world's way of disposable friendships. Jesus clearly disagrees with Emerson, right? Because he, Christ, moves close to sinners and he spends himself. He's a sanity in the midst of our insanity. In a world of contracts, he's a covenant to us. And because we've been befriended so well, we're free. We're free to be really good friends, really good friends to each other. You know, There is room in every passage for us to do this. I say it every week and I do it on purpose. There's room in this passage as well for us to confess and repent. I find when as I'm putting it together where I most see the sin in my life from a passage like this and it's to be passive in building relationships and it's to be protective, self-protective, to withdraw, to withhold. Those of us who feel alone, some of them, some of us were just really bad at making friends, right? We're terrible. And the reason we're so terrible at it is because we're not really comfortable being befriended by Jesus to that level. That's really where we've got to start. It's probably why you've thought about cutting someone loose. Maybe it's why you've gotten to the very edge of vulnerability and decided not to. Not to be 100% honest. Maybe you've avoided drama that comes with somebody else, the emotional debt that comes with somebody else. Friends, if that's you and that's me, We need to repent. Repentance is needed there. We're not victims in that. We're aggressors. We're aggressors. And I know I'm talking to people here who are also far from Christ, or or maybe you're watching and you're far from Christ, and you've wondered how this would fit with you. You just came to hear a little bit more about Jesus, and then this guy gets up and talks about friends. But I will say your quest to be ultimately known, that thing that you feel, that was hardwired in you from the beginning that hunger you have to just be known at such a deep level. That's not by mistake. You're not unique. That's in all of mankind. But we can't find it in mankind. We can't find the fulfillment of what is ingrained in other people. Can't find it horizontally. It's Christ who is the friend to sinners. I would submit to you that you find your deepest friendship in Christ 
to make sense of all the friendships you have around him. And that's the friendship that's going to bring life.